Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I know it's horrible to say you're glad your parents are gone, but it just felt so peaceful that that there was no more carry-on. That's Patricia Simmons who went back to study in her 40s to become a child protection officer and now spends her days intervening in difficult family situations. It's challenging work. It's often shocking and heartbreaking, and sometimes it's very dangerous. 
but she does it because she's passionate about keeping children safe. More than that, though, on a very fundamental level, she's passionate about letting children know she sees them. Patricia's greatest fear is that she'll be unable to prevent a child from disappearing without anyone noticing. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Patricia Simmons has very personal reasons that motivate her and most of them stem from her own dysfunctional childhood and her relationship with her baby brother, Robert. I grew up in um, an atmosphere of family violence. My father was an alcoholic. My mum got addicted to barbiturates because she really just wanted to numb herself, I'm guessing. I can can look back on this and say that now. At the time, I, I couldn't see that as a child. I'm one of seven children. Robert is the youngest child. He was born when I was about 10. The oldest was Paul. There was Paul, John, me, my sister Margaret. Then there was Tony, Mark and Robert. I looked after Robert from birth, really. When Robert was born, we lived in Faulkner, in a housing commission house in Faulkner. Even though my dad had a great job, he just spent a lot of money on alcohol. Uh, Then we went to live in Malaysia and we were provided this beautiful two-storey house with swimming pools, really nice. We lived in luxury there and we had three servants. The violence was we didn't observe because we had three servants looking after us then. So my parents could go off and do what they like and they left us in the care of the servants. So it was beautiful. We had a lovely three three years there. Then we came back and I think because Dad didn't have a job, he kind of fell to pieces and just was drinking around the clock more. And also my mother started drinking then. And I think that's because she sort of started drinking in Malaysia because she couldn't get the, the, the medication she was taking before that. So in Australia she was taking a lot of barbiturates and she went to Malaysia and couldn't get them, so she switched over to alcohol. And uh, so she was drinking with my father then. and. Um, Anyway, they went out one night to the hotel and my mother came home with three men. Then my dad burst in through the front door. Anyway, there was a big fight, there was broken glass and police came. Uh, Some of that I can't remember because I just couldn't believe what was happening really. And then my mum left with the three men and my dad packed his suitcase and left after they had gone. So they all left and then I went to bed. Uh, but in the morning, neither my mum or dad were there. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what happened. I just thought, well, they, they'll be back tomorrow, I suppose. Uh, but they, ne- they didn't come back. So my mum, I found out later, was in a car accident that night and uh, there was a seven-car pile-up in Mordialic and three people had died, including someone she was in the car with. And mum was in hospital with a back injury. So uh, she couldn't come home. That's why she didn't come home. So she actually didn't come home for months or she didn't come out of hospital for months. I was actually happy they were gone because it was peaceful. And we just went about our business and went to school, stole food. My brother and myself, who were the older two, we just come up with a plan of how we'd look after things. And so we just pretended that they, well, we just pretended 
I don't know what we were pretending. <laughs> we were just happy. I Well, I was happy anyway. I was happy they were gone. They were mad. They just created a lot of chaotic mess, and it was quiet and peaceful when they left. I know it's horrible to say you're glad your parents are gone, but it just felt so peaceful that, that there was no more carry-on, you know, and arguing and violence and, Anyway, my grandmother kept ringing up wanting to speak to my mum and we were telling, I was, well, I was telling her all sorts of lies. She's at the shop, she's in the bathroom. Uh, but eventually she's turned up at the house with a child protection worker. <laughs> so that's what I do now. I turn up at houses <laughs> uh, and I'm that child protection worker. At the time we were placed, Paul was living with my auntie. Then John took off because he, he could see what was about to happen. So he was 15, so he lived on the streets and is pretty much living on the streets still now. I went to live with my aunt for a few months. The others, three brothers and a sister, went to a Lambie children's home. I was put with my aunt because of my age, because I was too old for a Lambie and the next home up was more like a women's prison and my aunt didn't want me to go there, so she was offering to adopt me. I was 13 and a half, but I actually, I went to children's court and I was given an option. Do I want to be with my siblings or do I want to be with my auntie? And at that point I said, I want to be with my siblings. When you're living with a family and they're all, you know, it's all nutty and there's a lot of violence and fear in the house, all you have is your siblings. So, you know, we were very close before all that happened, before we were split. Like that's who you lean on in your house, are your siblings. Myself and my sister ran away and we were picked up by the police after walking 25 kilometres. They drove us back in like 30 minutes. We were removed from the home because we'd run away. So they placed my sister in a Good Shepherd convent. So after deciding to go there to be with my siblings, I ended up there alone. And my sister ended up in a convent alone and my three brothers ended up in Bacchus Marshall home. I didn't see them again for another year because I was in, in the home in, a, in a Lambie until I turned 15. Then I got released into my own care and I lived with my mother who said, I can live with, you. I can live with her as long as I give her my whole pay. So I did that because that's what I needed to do. I then would go up and see them on Weekends, yes, when mum went up, I went with her. My sister came home when she turned 15. But, you know, all our relationships were quite fractured and damaged, really. I can see that now, but I probably couldn't see it back then. I started having epileptic seizures at 15, and I do think it was to do with trauma. It must be very painful to be thinking all these things that happened to your brother, and especially with the the relationship that you had as children and and the fallout, you know, the fracturing of your family. As the years have gone on, you were doing, you know, living your life. You had some really serious stuff going on in your life. And the nature of your relationship with your siblings, I guess it wasn't like regular contact. It was sort of drift in and out kind of thing. Uh, for some years, so in my maybe late teens to early 20s, a little bit drifting in and out because I had relationships and I was caught up in them. But there were other times I spent a lot of time with my family, actually. 
a lot. I would go to visit my mother every single week. I had a lot of contact with them. What was life like for Robert? So he was in care from 70 to 75. Then he came home and mum and Arthur, my stepfather, had got married. Well, they got married a bit after that, I think, but they got a house. So they got a house. I think life was just kind of a little bit normal for them and Robert joined a lot of activities. Actually, he was always a very active kind of a hyperactive kind of a a boy and just loved doing groupy things with people. But before he was in the Navy, he was in the Venturers and Scouts and he, he was just active in groups, group stuff with other people. Then he's joined the Navy because he just loved water stuff, water sports, and I think it was just like an extension of that. He's joined that and then I think somewhere around then he's got introduced to marijuana and he was smoking marijuana and he got caught with it in his locker on the Navy base and I know that he was put into solitary confinement a few times for that, which would have been very bad for him given his trauma history. He developed a psychosis because of the marijuana and he went to La Rundle. Have you heard of La Rundle? La Rundle was a mental health facility or a psychiatric facility. It was for the treatment of mental health disorders and I have since found that he was diagnosed with drug-induced psychosis and I did get a medical medical reports from La Rundle. I got them from the Navy actually. It was actually quite advanced that he would have been diagnosed with drug-induced psychosis back in those days because uh, generally it would have just been psychosis and they wouldn't have linked it to the fact that he was smoking marijuana. So he's in he's in La Rundle and he's receiving treatment and the hope was that he would become well and then return to the Navy. He's not, he's not become well and then he was pensioned out of the Navy on a full pension. He received a medical pension from the Navy and was exited from the Navy. So he went up to Sydney and he, he had to attend annual medical reviews to maintain his pension. So he had a medical review due in November. Was that unusual that he would have missed that appointment? Because that's what happened, isn't it? He missed the medical appointment and he had a full pension available to him should he attend a medical appointment. At the time he went missing, he was using drugs. Now, most drug addicts will walk over broken glass to get to that money. They'll certainly attend a medical appointment for it. They'll do anything for it. So I don't believe he was able to attend a medical appointment and I don't believe he was able to access his bank. Have you confirmed where he was last seen? Was it Sydney or was it Melbourne? On the last day I saw him, which was 28th of February, 87, I know that because that was the day I got married. And it was the absolute worst thing I ever did in my life, get married to that man who turned out to be a really violent man who tried to kill me. I got into this bad relationship and it was four years for me to get out of it and also get sober. In that time, I had a baby die, um, a baby born. My mum died and my dad died and Robert went missing. So in a space of four years, all of that was happening. Then by the time I sort of came out of that, I'm like, well, where's Robert? You know, did someone report him missing? 
did anybody do anything when he went missing? Like, did anyone notice that he's not here? Like, at first, I think we thought he just kind of went off to Sydney for, you know, he just he just went up there for a little break, but then he just didn't come back. So at, initially we didn't think he was missing. He just went to Sydney. He told us that that's what he was doing. And I didn't think more of it because I was caught up in all my own stuff that was going on at the time, having babies and stuff. And I, I had twins in May of 87. So um, I was pretty busy. He, he was up in Sydney. Well, he just never came back. It was 92, I think, when my stepfather said to me, oh, I've got this letter from the bank, you know, and they want to know what to do with Robert's $10,000 that's in the bank. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, they, they've closed the account, so they just don't know what to do with the money. I said, well, where's Robert? Why, well, why don't you send it to him? Well, he's missing. I don't know where he is. I said, what do you mean he's missing? Did you report him missing? Oh, yes, your mum reported him missing back in whatever, 1987. So anyway, that's when I started following up. And I went down to the police station and they said they had no missing persons report. They said they only keep 12 months and then they just get rid of them. And you have to report a person missing every 12 months, they told me. We've got a ridiculous system. So I reported him missing and then I just kept following it up. And I've been following it up ever since. I also employed a solicitor for a while. But he just did a few searches like he checked water-related deaths in Victoria at that point and and then the police did just basic searches of the federal police, coroner's court, DHS, birth, deaths and marriages, Centrelink, things like that. They just found no activity on him. There was no driver's licence. He had no Centrelink. He was just like had no footprint. He just vanished, really, off the face of the earth somewhere. And now that I've done all my tracking, because I've now since found, located all the friends that he, he had back in 87, and that was hard to do. But uh, through his school, his old school, and through one friend I started with, and then I found a whole lot of others, and now I've interviewed them all and put together a story that sort of pieced like what happened and where he went, like where the steps he take, and then when where he just vanished. So I think he just vanished mid-87. So Robert's my baby brother, and look, I lost him. He got lost, you know. And I do feel like I let him down because during that period when he got lost, I was lost too. Robert William Simmons, also known as Skinny, would be 54 years old now. He's 178 centimetres tall. As a younger man, he had golden brown hair and he has blue eyes. Robert was last known to reside in St Kilda in Melbourne in 1987, but is last known to have been in Sydney. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Robert Simmons, you can call Crime Stoppers anonymously, if you prefer, on 1-800-333-000. We have photos and more information about Robert on our Facebook page. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Coming up on Australian True Crime, there's a reason we didn't release this episode during Australian Missing Persons Week, which was last week. The reason is that Robert's sister Patricia believes that a different squad should have been investigating Robert's case from day one, and she'll explain why. But first, information and rumours begin to filter back to the siblings about the fate of their baby brother. It was in 1994, actually, that my brother Tony said that he'd been in Cairns, he was in Cairns, and he had bumped into a man called Colin, who had been a friend of Robert's, and he said to Tony, I'm so sorry to hear that Robert drowned. And Tony said, well, I don't know what you mean, we don't know anything about a drowning, what are you talking about? And Colin said he drowned in a river, he he was told that he drowned in a river. Tony told me that when he came back to Melbourne. So the both of us were just like, where did that information come from? And uh, so I provided that information to the solicitor that I engaged and also later on to the police that I engaged. But I also, I did find a link a bit later. Once I, once I met Robert's friends that he went to school with, they also regurgitated a story about how they how Robert had drowned, but it wasn't in a river. It was There was a party that Robert was at with a friend, called, which was actually the friend that he went to Sydney with. He was at a party with a friend and him and the friend went off to get alcohol for the party and the friend came back, but Robert didn't come back. And the friend apparently looked quite disturbed and uh, was telling different stories about where Robert was and had said something about him drowning. There's a lot of little stories along the way that I've got as I've spoken to people 
that actually just don't make sense because then there's other people who say they saw him after that. I went to an evening with a whole lot of other people who had missing people in their life and all of them had something in common actually and all of them said that in some part of the stories there was always this little piece of information thrown in that threw their case out. Someone would say, oh, he was sighted here or there. Is it Dan O'Keefe who was thought to go missing and he was sighted all over Australia, wasn't he? Now, where was he found? It's tragic. I'm not going to say it because people who follow missing persons reports know where he was found. Now, he was sighted everywhere, but he was obviously not everywhere. So this is what happens when people go missing. Other people, well-meaning, think they're helping and they say, oh, I've seen him here, there or whatever. And that throws the case out then. It throws the detectives who are investigating off the track. And, in fact, in this case, there is one person who said, I saw Robert in 1992 in Mento. So as a result of that, the police have stopped their investigation and will not take it to an inquest to the coroner's court because of that. They said, okay, well, he's not missing. He's alive. He's just choosing to be missing. Now, he's just not choosing to be missing because he would not choose to have $10,000 sitting in the bank untouched. He would not choose to have walked away from a full income that he could be living off. That's just insane. I did think that this person who is, I'm not going to say a friend of Robert's because he's, I don't believe he is a friend of Robert's, I did think it was malicious actually. And I, I have kind of formed various views about what's happened to to Robert along the way. They're all different ones, but they all amount to the fact that he's dead. All of them. They all come to the same conclusion in the end. I believe he's dead because I believe if he was alive, he would have come forward. I found out through all my investigation that Robert was same-sex attracted. So he was living in Sydney in the 80s. Now, I do know in, in the 80s in Sydney, they were throwing men off cliffs. Men were being murdered. Same-sex attracted men were being murdered. And in Victoria too, actually. They weren't popular. And so he could have been murdered because of his sexuality preferences. The other thought I had was that he was hitchhiking from Sydney to Melbourne and Ivan Malak got him. Who knows how many other people he's murdered? We don't know. And then I have thought that one of those friends or acquaintances of Roberts has murdered him for money because Robert was just way too generous with money and not careful. He just wanted to be liked. He was easy to be taken advantage of. And what's it been like, the process for you, really advocating for Robert? You're investigating, you're on the case, you're getting resistance from authorities. Where are you at right now with it? So over the years, I've gone through periods where I'm just completely obsessed with it, where I I go to work, I come home, and then I start again looking. You know, since the internet, you know, came out, it's made it easier for me to get on there and just look everywhere to try and find him, Facebook and all of those things. So that's that's made the search easier, but it's also I get to a point where I can't go on anymore because it's just too painful to keep living like that every single day. And the rest of my family don't want to hear about it because, you know, they just want to go on with their lives. 
And uh, I think my own children probably find it hard to watch me going through this. They just want me to move on as well. But it gets hard sometimes. And I'm actually finding right now during COVID is probably a difficult period. And I think it is for other people who have missing people because you're so separated and isolated and uh, you're left with your thoughts. Whereas if you can keep busy doing other things that distract you, then you're not left with it all. But I've had such limited contact with the police. I'm just astounded, really, about the process. I believed at some point there was a missing persons bureau. I thought it was like on television. I thought there were people sitting in a room somewhere looking for missing people. And to my shock and horror, I find there's all these dead bodies. They're called John and Jane Doe's. And then there's a missing, you know, there's missing person files held in different separate places all over the place. In, and there's no system for somehow matching them all up. So a, a body's found and they just put categorise and put it away. They don't go, oh, okay, let's match this against the missing people we've got. I just find that astounding. So there's hundreds and hundreds of bodies that uh, have been buried and they haven't matched them to anyone. And I know that there was a point where they set up the Bel Air Task Force in 2008 and the man from that, Dan Husenveld, he rang me actually at the time. He had the file and he got Robert's dental x-ray because what they were going to do was they were digging up a certain number of bodies, not all of them. They were going to try and match some of them, So, but it was a bit random. So they had his dental x-rays and they also had my DNA, but nothing ever came out of that. And then that task force disbanded because there was no funding. Robert's file is currently held by the Crime Investigation Unit in Melbourne, St Kilda, which is not a missing persons bureau. It's uh, the homicide score. But it's not investigated. So the file just sits there and they tell me that if I dig up any clues to ring them. So if I dig up clues, I ring them. That's how it works. And then they will follow the clues by uh, passing them off to a constable in a police station who will then go out and talk to somebody, not interview somebody, not interrogate somebody. They just go out and ask them, do you know X, Y, Z? And if they say no, they just what? They just tick that box and go, okay, that's fine. That's not very coordinated, you know, thing because I've passed them some, I think, pretty good clues. There's a particular man that I think knows a lot more than he's told the police. I won't say his name, but there, there is a man who, who knows information, I believe, and he, I gave his name to the police. And, well, I don't know that they, you'd call it an interview. I believe that somebody, there is somebody out there who knows what happened to Robert. Someone out there knows what happened. I just would like them to come forward and say what happened. Now, but what happened may be that there was an accident of some sort and he died because of it. So come forward and say so and just clear it up. That's probably hard for whoever is listening because they think they've got away with it or they don't want to get you know involved or whatever, I don't know. But I would just say just come forward, please.
I would just really like to know what happened. It's just like this never-ending, there's no end to this. I just need to know what happened to my brother. One of the shames is that this kind of case is investigated as a missing person and not as a homicide. If they investigated it like a homicide from the start, they would have started going through clues, but they didn't. They never spoke. Not once have they spoken to my family. Nobody has been interviewed ever. The police have never interviewed anyone. I just find that it's astounding. It just tells me they don't really care. I've had to chase them. They've not interviewed me. No, I've tried to add, give them information all the way through. I've faxed them stuff in the early days and I've emailed and I, um, I send regular emails to the detective who's got it and I think he just ignores me now. I don't even get feedback really saying thank you for your email or nothing. I belong to a group now and we catch up on Messenger and Facebook and phone and all of us have either someone who's been murdered or gone missing and there's something suspicious about it because what it tells me, all of us feel the same way. It just tells me that I'm normal and what I'm experiencing is normal for for what's happened. Where was your relationship at with your mother and your father at the time they passed away? My father I never saw again after the night that he walked out of our house in Mordialic. I was 13 then. I did find out that he lived in Bribey Island, Queensland, when he died. My brother, John, had tracked him to there and he'd gone to see him actually. He had remarried and uh, he neglected to tell his new wife that he had seven children. Can you imagine? She thought he had one child. (laughs) So that was a surprise when she met John. And then my sister turned up there too later. I had no more contact with him. I actually felt very angry with my dad for leaving and not making sure we were okay. I felt less angry with my mother at that time, but as the years went by, I started to feel I had waves of, I think your feelings change in waves when someone's passed away. Your relationship with them continues in a way. So even though they're gone, you're continuing to have some sort of a relationship that's evolving. That's how I would explain it. That's Patricia Simmons talking about her brother, Robert Simmons, whose details can be found on our Facebook page. Patricia mentioned another young man who was reported missing from Geelong in the winter of 2011 by the name of Dan O'Keefe. He was last seen by his father when the two chatted in the kitchen of his parents' home before his dad left for work. By the time his mum woke up around half an hour later, he was gone. Like many families missing loved ones, Dan's family chased leads all over Australia for the next five years. In the case of his big sister Lauren, it literally took over her life, and she founded an organisation called MPAN, Missing Persons Advocacy Network, through which she's developed resources and helped countless other families in the same terrible situation. In March of 2016, Dan's father found his skeletal remains in a small cavity under their home. Police said there were no suspicious circumstances and that the exceptionally cold conditions of the space under the house during the winter months was a major contributing factor to the remains being undiscovered during initial searches. Lauren O'Keefe continues her work with MPAN and, in fact, 
has recently launched a 10-part podcast series called What's Missing, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to our patrons, Shana Goodworth, Chris Tarr, Kia Curtin, Jessica Locanini, Tony V, Amy Smith, Alan Cowie, Demetra T, Donna Fern, and Drive Fatigue Awareness Day. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. Stay well, stay home, and we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, Michelle Laurie here. And as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.